Welcome to Compass Teachers Show. I'm your host, Tiffin. My job is to interview teachers around the world and tease out their teaching tactics, education research, or tools they use. Hopefully, this show can offer some ideas for you to experiment in your classroom. <coughs> this episode is on about hacking assessments. If you have been thinking about changing assessment but don't know how to do it, I hope in this episode you can get some practical action to take. If you have n- never thought about changing it, this episode will give you a totally different insight. Today we are really excited to have Star Saxton to share with her amazing hacks for transforming this paradigm. Star Saxton has been an educator since 2001 and left her role as the director of humanities in the West Hampstead Union Free School District to become a full-time consultant with the Core Collaborative. Star was named an ASCD Emerging Leader Class of 2016. And gave a tech talk called "A Recovering Professional's Journey to Give Up Grades." She has authored many books for teachers, for example, "Teaching Students to Self-Assess," "Hacking Assessment: Ten Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional Grade School," "Peer Feedback in the Classroom," and the list goes on. Star has traveled the world, sharing ideas about assessment reform in Dubai and South Korea. And is hoping to continue change the system for kids everywhere. Now let's enjoy our conversation with Star. Star, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So, Star, from your work, we know that you put tons of work to help teachers changing how they assess. But before we dig deeper into that, I guess before you to own this endeavor to change the, this paradigm, you might have been feel something wrong with it for a while. I'm curious what really triggered you to take action. So, for the first few years of my career, I would say that it was pretty business as usual. I did assessment the way that it was done to me when I was a student. And you know, I thought that grades were basically supposed to communicate what students knew, but there were a lot of other factors involved, like how well they were able to follow my rules and other compliance measures, like late work and following directions. All of those different things kind of played in. And when I had my son, and he got to middle、um, elementary school. The school used a standards-based approach、um, to learning, and his report card gave a lot of very specific information about what he knew and could do. And I was thinking about the AP students in my twelfth-grade English class and how ineffective report cards were, and the way that I was assessing really was. Because there was such little precision in the kind of feedback my students were getting in terms of their grades, that I I really started to rethink things. And at that point, I started to read a bunch of books. The one that really got me going on this path would be Ken O'Connor's book,、um, A Toolkit for Broken Grading: Fifteen Fixes. And when I read that book.、Um, I, I really reflected deeply on the things that I was doing that he claimed weren't best practices, and the more I thought about it, the more I could see what he was talking about. For example,、um, for group projects, 
grading group projects and then giving that grade to everyone in the group, which is definitely something I did in my early career. Um, and, and really what I learned was that grade was not ne- necessarily representative of the contribution of each child in that group. So what did the grade actually represent? How well the product met the mark, but it wasn't necessarily fair or equitable or even close to um, communicating what each child's contribution was. So I started to realize things needed to shift at that point. And once you could see something as not being as good as it could be, all of a sudden you start to question all the practices that you're doing. And that's sort of where my journey started, just um, not grading as much, giving better, more specific feedback, changing the way that I assessed both formatively and summatively. Uh, I stopped giving traditional kinds of tests and started moving towards a student-centered approach where students had a part and a voice in the kind of assessments they were engaging in. And then they also had a role in, in how that assessment was then assessed after the fact, whether, you know, just making sure that it was aligned with standards, but more importantly, that I wasn't missing anything in their learning through the use of reflection. Wonderful. So I think it's a good time we dig into the alternative assessment that optimizes students' learning. First of all, I bet we need to change our perception of assessment before doing any hacks. And Star, I think you have mentioned a little bit during your uh, story how that triggered you to take action. So Star, how did you convey this to your students or parents, or even your school administrators? So that's a, it's a tricky question. I think when I first started doing this, I was the only teacher in my six to 12 school doing something that was so far outside of the normal. New York City public schools still required a grade at the end of each marking period. And so I had to find loopholes that were going to suit what I was trying to do and also fit what my school expected me to do. I don't know that I really asked permission of my of my principal and the administration on my team. I think that I wanted to make sure I could get the results I was looking for before I had formal permission to do it um, because it would have been harder to try what I, what I wanted to do and then ask and get a no, and then have to find another way around it. So the, the first thing I sort of started to do was stop grading everything. That didn't mean I stopped giving feedback. If anything, I kind of ramped up the feedback, but I didn't actually put a grade on the formative aspects of the learning. So if my students were writing drafts, even if I was tracking the drafts, in our online communication system, rather than put a grade on the draft, they got specific feedback that aligned with the success criteria for the assignment. And they also got specific feedback that aligned with the goals they were working on individually. And that was the first major change I made. Um, I made sure to reach out to parents via email and also by building a YouTube channel so that they can see 
what's actually happening in the classroom and kind of explain some of the differences between what was happening in our classroom than other classrooms. And then I also tried to keep myself open if parents contacted me to answer their questions and concerns, because as the teacher of 12th grade students who were on their way into college, obviously a lot of AP students are concerned about their transcript and parents are worried that changing the approach or model at this point in a student's career could somehow negatively affect their ability to get into college. So just really finding ways to alleviate concern of parents and students that the learning would still be there, if not better and more communication about the specifics of what students knew and could do. Right. So, Star, you say that some students were concerned about the if they don't get the grade, how they can present to this education system that they are capable. So how did you explain to them that this way of giving feedback is a better way? So I'm sure you know, and, and so do your listeners, that sometimes the proof is in the pudding, as they say. So it took a little convincing at first, and there were conversations that I had with my students, very frank and transparent about how we were going to be making this shift. And this was something new for me, but transparently explaining why we were doing it. And then helping them understand how the feedback they would get and the opportunities they would have to make revisions and spend more time with their work would increase their level of knowing. And the school itself was a portfolio school. So they were tracking their progress anyway in the portfolios for all the classes that they were in. So this idea of using your learning as benchmarks and then tracking your progress through individual assignments was an opportunity for us to sort of say, you know, you're going to keep working on something until you're proficient or masterful at it. And you're going to know if you're proficient or masterful at it because we're going to have really clear expectations. Success criteria is going to be visible. And then you're going to have opportunities for to advocate for help, make revisions based on the feedback that you get, whether it's peer feedback or feedback from me. And then you're going to think about your learning over the course of that entire experience, the formative aspects of it, and then the summative once you turn that project or paper in at the end, based on the feedback that you gave, you're going to write a really clear standards aligned reflection that speaks about your process so that you know that I see the full picture and then you're being assessed on something more completely. And I think when they started to see that and that they were getting so much more information than just a grade, most of my students actually really liked the fact that I took so much time to really make sure that they were successful. And, you know, we were really using what they were learning and it, it was helping us kind of benchmark where we, where we were and where we needed to go. And again, that process just became a lot more transparent because it was their needs that were dictating how projects were developed and how quickly or how slowly we progressed through specific content. 
now we have to talk about feedback. So I think it's a good segue. We、um, chat more about how a teacher can construct the feedback. From your blog and book, you say that you will give oral and written feedback. Besides, one-to-one conferences with students become very important. So when you giving students written feedback or talking with with them in one-to-one conference, what are your strategies for constructing a feedback that is helpful for students? So, because my students were eleventh and twelfth graders mostly, part of the feedback was teaching them how to ask for the kind of help and feedback they needed.、Um, I think a lot of students walk up to a teacher and say, "Is this good?" Which is a pretty generic and、um, subjective kind of question. So, the first part of giving really effective feedback is teaching students to ask really good questions about. What they want feedback about.、Um, so if you're structuring your classes like a workshop, and you have your mini lessons each day, and you see that students are struggling with specific things, the first and easiest way to determine how you're going to give feedback is based on the very specific skills you're teaching them. So if we're learning about、um, thesis statements or developing context in an introductory paragraph, or we're talking about Transitions and cohesion, or we're talking about development. Any of those things, that's where we're going to start with the feedback. Looking at what students do really well, because we want to make sure that we're kind of building the feedback out of their strengths and not out of their deficits. And we want to communicate to them why what they're doing is really good and how they could build on it. And then the areas of challenge. We really want to make sure that they understand, first of all, what it should look like. So there should be models and exemplars ready to point them to.、Um, there should be at least one or two strategies you could provide for them if you want them to grow in a particular way. And then you need to give them time to ask more questions and practice the different things, and then come back to you again and say, "I tried strategy A." And this is what I was able to achieve. Or strategy A didn't work for me, so I went to strategy B, and then I linked up with one of my friends and you know tried to get some feedback from a peer who seemed to be doing better with this area than I did, and you know that kind of helped me try a different way. And that's also how you get kids to start building their own goals as well, based on the feedback that we're giving. So. We we want to start first with where you know the whole class is, and then as we're taking the status of the class before those one-on-one conferences, really trying to get a good idea of where the kids are as a group and where they are individually, so that you can really、um, tailor the feedback that you're giving to something more specific to the to the student who's sitting in front of you. That's really great. So let me review a little bit first. We we need to teach students to ask effective feedback, and in the feedback form, we need to ask students why and how, and also some really practical examples that、um, students can take reference on, and then give them some time to experiment and try to reflect with more questions. And I bet that start you might get some. Like questions or doubts from teachers, like saying, "Hey, it sounds like 
it might take lots of time after ditching letter grades. And for that kind of question, how you will respond to teachers or any tips that you will tell them that so they can give feedback in a more effective fashion? Okay, so this is also kind of a tough thing. And I, I do want to preface it by saying I did teach high school English in New York City schools. So I had a course load of 150 students in my five classes, or, or more than that, because classes were capped at 34. So it is possible to give really good specific feedback to that many students. It does take a lot of time. And as you're building structures on the front end, you you have to find things that are going to work for your kids. So whether you're developing Google Forms that align with the standards and what you're actually um, what you're actually teaching, and you're teaching students to reflect and think about learning through those forms as you scaffold the process, um, by mid year it does become a lot less clunky than it is in the beginning of the year when you're getting to know your students and you're also building the structures that you're going to be using. But it, but it is time consuming. And, and I would argue, though, that grades are a very efficient means of, of assessing students. It's quick. Um, it's not terribly helpful. And it's also not very accurate. But it is fast. So it's a question of effectiveness versus efficiency. And I think we would all agree that it's more important that students get effective feedback than it is for us to be efficient in the way that we're giving them the feedback. So even another thing that teachers could consider is that we need to relinquish the control in the space. And if we train students to be really good givers of feedback as well, and that students need to get, get feedback from their peers before they get feedback from us, then we're putting structures in place that diminishes the amount of time we have to spend on the front end giving that first level of feedback to our students because we've made them really, really prepared to, first of all, be independent in checking for their own feedback, whether it's with checklists or success criteria or clear rubrics. And then they're going to peers who have fresh eyes who could look and give them the feedback as well. And when they decide to come to us on, let's say, the third round, then they've gotten feedback from more than one person already. And those systems in itself take some of the burden off of us as teachers to make sure that every child is, is getting the feedback they need. I will also say that you will not be able to give every child feedback specifically every single day. I would think of it in terms of week-long chunks instead of, you know, daily, especially if you walk around with like either an iPad or a, um, you know, some kind of status of the class where you're carrying your clipboard and you're just jotting down what you overhear students talking about and what you see them doing while you're observing. And then you're taking that information that you're, that you're gathering while you're getting the status of the class to make some good decisions about, how to adjust adjust your lesson plans too to really speak to where kids' needs are. Hmm, I see. So, Star, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, that I have read your uh, book, Hacking Assessments. And from your book, there are two hacks particularly stood out for me. The first one is teaching reflection. 
and instill that for me because I feel like it is a skill I believe that is useful for a lifelong. So, w- would you mind giving us an overview about how you implementing the lesson plan of teaching reflection? So, to me, the most valuable gift I have given my students over the years is the gift of reflection and in purposeful reflection. Because I think when students hear reflection, sometimes what they've been expected to do is maybe think about. If they enjoyed a project, what they thought they got out of it, something really basic, and maybe like a paragraph, but nothing that's actually gonna speak to their learning and their process, the med- the metacognitive process they went through to complete an assignment. So when I'm teaching students how to reflect effectively, there's a whole process that I go through. The first thing that students have to do is that they have to restate. What the assignment was asking them to do, in their own words, not cutting and pasting from the document, but really articulating what they thought they had to do. And the reason I asked them to do this is, I'm sure your listeners and yourself can empathize with sometimes thinking you created a very clear assignment, and when you get the student work back, it doesn't look anything like what you were expecting. And what I have learned over the time working in high school classes is, it's not always the student's fault for for having that miscommunication. Sometimes my directions weren't as clear as they could be. So by asking students to tell me what they thought they had to do, it gives me an opportunity to really assess what they planned on doing instead of just assessing what I thought I asked them to do. Which aren't always the same thing. So that's step one paragraph where they're talking about what the assignment was asking them to do, and then from there they talk about how they completed the assignment. What steps did they take from start to beginning? Where did they struggle in the learning? How did they overcome those struggles? And then beyond that,、um, they think about the standards. Where in the work do they exhibit? The level of proficiency mastery around particular standards that the assignment was addressing, and almost like writing an argument paper, they then have to go back to their project and find evidence from the text that supports where they are on a particular standard and why. From there, they then give themselves. They give themselves a grade based on their level of mastery for the assignment, and they then also talk about what they would do differently next time, based on the experience they had with this particular assignment. So there's a lot going on there, and if a teacher reads the student's reflection prior to assessing the work, you can really get inside the head of the student. And see what feedback you've given them along the way, because that'll be a part of their process implementing the feedback, and then provide them more specific feedback with their final product. Were they successful in the things that they were working on? What should they be working on next? So those reflections really become integral in how you're you're providing additional feedback and also assessing their learning. Because that reflection also fills a lot of gaps.、Um, before I started inviting students into the process of developing the assessments as well, 
a lot of times what I was asking students to show me didn't always show everything they know. So having these reflections also gave me an opportunity to kind of see in the blind spots that the assessment itself didn't really assess. The first step Sorry, mentioning is ask the student what assessments asking them to do. So is this step before or after the doing the assessment? Um, there, this reflection is after. So they've yeah they've completed the assignment, and then before they submit the assignment, they're doing this reflection as well. Got it. So on this uh, lesson plan, we'll be implementing after they doing the assessment. Right. It would be more goal setting before the assessment. I see. I see. So the the first step we're asking them what assessment is asking them to do, and the second would be how they uh, accomplish the assessment. Is there any struggles and what kind of standards they accomplish, and any evidence that can support that, and then they can grade them by the evidence. The final step would be ask them to reflect what they can do differently next time. So the second hack that impressed me is self-grade. You said that when there's a report card required, you ask your students to grade themselves given their learning progress. Why do you think we should empower students to evaluate themselves? I think kids know a lot more about themselves as learners than we give them credit for. I think a lot of the times... They've never actually been taught to articulate with a vocabulary the kind of things we want them to tell us, which is what the struggle is. But if we teach them about standards and we use the language of standards in our classes and we align learning targets with the standards that we're using, and then we co-construct success criteria together so that the language is very much baked into what we're doing, students can then articulate how well they're doing. The, the other thing teachers can do that can make that easier is to develop, to develop um, progressions based on the standards so that students can really identify where on a progression they are based on the skill set that they have and the things they need to continue working on. So if we have student-friendly um, progressions and students can identify that they're at a specific spot on those progressions, then they know what they are shooting for as they move forward and they know where they currently are based on that same theory. So we, we really just need to give kids language so that they could talk about um, their own learning. I know a lot of folks have asked me in the past, well, you know, won't kids overgrade themselves? Like, would they give themselves an A just because? And you'd be surprised to know that most kids are harder on themselves than we'd even be on them. There's a really, really small percentage of students who would over, you know, that would shoot for the delusions of grandeur. And even though they have no evidence to support um, where they are in those conversations, they might assess themselves higher. And really the only thing to do from there is just, you know, turn it around and ask them again, what evidence do you have to support that assessment of yourself? And then really make it 
a point for them to be able to demonstrate that understanding in a way that is tangible with real evidence. So, what did you observe the changes in your students before and after you deploy Grayley's assessment, or any story that you can share with us around the moment you realized your hacks were working? Oh my God! First of all, the the level of commitment to learning was increased completely. You know, everybody was like, "Well, if there are no grades, kids aren't going to work as hard." That was definitely not my experience. As a matter of fact, once the grades were removed, even the students who weren't your typical, your typical high achieving students because they didn't play the game of school, had a much better opportunity to be successful because it wasn't a matter of how many hoops could you jump through. It was a matter of how can you demonstrate what you know and can do. And if I was being more flexible in the kind of assessment that was going on, and students actually had a voice in the way they were assessed, some of those challenges, especially with the more、um, school-averse students, you know, became less because I wasn't forcing them to do what I wanted them to do. I was listening to what they were saying, and I was giving them an opportunity to make decisions about how they showed their learning. And as long as their ideas were viable, I allowed them to move forward with them. And I think, really, over time, it became less about the grades and more about improvement. That was the biggest shift.、Um, the conversations in class were less about, you know, what did I get on that, and more about. I'm really struggling with this, or I've really improved a lot on that. And the fact that they had the language to really articulate those things made it even easier for me to adjust instruction when I needed to, and it really helped me see them as partners in the developing process in terms of you know instructionally what was happening in the classroom. So there was more of a reciprocal relationship between me and the students than there was at first. And I wasn't the only arbiter of what was good and great, and what we learned. And I think that made the space a better learning environment, not just for the students, but for me also. That's amazing. I think it's a definitely win-win situation when deployed this new form of assessment. And thank you, Star, for sharing so much amazing ideas and. Really clear steps to how a teacher can take、um, in their classroom. So the last few questions I have for you are: the first one would be, any books come to your mind that influence your thinking a lot in the past few years? So, like I mentioned before, the book by Ken O'Connor,、um, "Fifteen Fixes for Broken Grades."、Um, Rick Wormley's "Fair Isn't Always Equal." Is another really good one. More recently, Joe Feldman's "Grading for Equity" is really good.、Um, Mark Barnes's assessment 3.0 and role reversal also really good texts. Paul Bloomberg and Par- and Barb Pitchford's Impact Team book, which is all about protocols for、um, more specific PLC conversations around student learning, and 
you know, I've had a bunch of my my own books, but there's certainly a community. Alfie Cohn also has great resources and he's been doing this work, you know, long before I was. And he's a, a tremendous resource as well as somebody who knows a lot about helping kids learn without labeling their learning. That's a really great list. I will make sure they are all in the show notes with uh, also your books as well. To you personally, what is your core value in education? I believe that every child has something valuable to add to a learning environment. And I believe that we need to honor every child and and what those strengths are so that we can all grow as a group. And I think for too long, education has segregated kids, sort of sorted them into different categories, and then asked them to play this game that often favors um, kids, um, kids with a lot, you know, whether it's kids with money or Um, privileged kids of other kinds that set a lot of other students apart. So I think it's really important that we know our students really well and we create really inclusive environments that take into consideration the human beings that are sitting in front of us. And assessment shouldn't make kids feel badly about the learning process. It should do the opposite. It should encourage and engage them to want to be a better learner from whatever their starting point is without judgment and without labels. So before we close up, do you have any other thoughts, programs, or workshops you want to share with our listeners? So there's a lot of stuff going on right now. I work for the Core Collaborative right now. So what I do is I often coach teams through their assessment process. That's That's one thing I do. Um, on Fridays on Facebook, I do like a Q&A around hacking assessment, and that one's free. They could just show up and participate, ask questions while that's happening. I have a new book coming out with ASCD in March, which is all about the intersection. It's called Assessing with Respect. And it's all about taking into consideration the social emotional needs of students when we make decisions about assessment. And there are also a bunch of online conferences that are going to be happening over the next six months that folks could participate in as well. I have all that stuff on my website. Great. So if people want to learn about your work, how they can find you online? I think you mentioned your website, m-s-s-a-c-k-s-t-e-i-n.com. And other than that, any other way they can find you online? Absolutely. I Probably the best place to find me online is Twitter, at Miss Saxstein. Um, that I'm on Twitter a lot. And if you direct message me or you just tweet at me, I will always get back to you. So that's probably the best and easiest way or via email, which they could get, get to me through my website as well. Thank you for listening. We will put the things mentioned in the interview to the show notes. If you enjoy our show, welcome to share and don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.